Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 220. My interview with Luba Vinogradova about her book, Defending the Motherland, the Soviet women who fought Hitler's aces. Plucked from every background and led by an NKVD major, the new recruits would fill the ranks of three air combat regiments that would help take on the invading Germans. With Moscow itself on the verge of being occupied, the Soviet Union was creating the first all-female active combat units in modern history. Dr. Vina Gradova was born in Moscow and helped Antony Beaver research his book, Stalingrad. Together, they also produced A Writer at War, Vasily Grossman, with the Red Army. So, Luba, thank you very much for coming on the show again to talk about your latest book. Thank you very much for your interest. I'm so flattered that you've invited me again. Yeah, so the last time you were here, we spoke about your book, Avenging Angels, Young Women of the Soviet Union's World War II Sniper Corps. And again, uh, you went back to that subject of very young women, inexperienced, who just want to do their part for the country. But this time, they're going to end up um, pilots in the sky in various regiments, again, trying to defend their country from the German invaders. That's right. Uh, I have to say, though, that the pilots were a little bit older. They, uh, the pilots who went to serve in the fighter regiment and uh, in the dive bomber regiment had to have a lot of flying hours, which meant that they were several years older than the majority of the girls conscripted in those times, uh. those years. So, so this was the reason why, uh, when I started my interviews, I found so few of them still alive. Right. Very few. I was I was lucky to have met a few. Oh, excellent. Now, you do emphasize in your book that some of these women come from the cities, some come from Moscow, a lot of come from the countries, and so they have these very different backgrounds, but some of them do have a certain amount of flying hours. But again, this is going to be a very different life for them um, once they do um, become part of the armed forces. So just to jump into it, can you describe for us the panic that is in Moscow in October of 1941 and what uh, Marina Raskova's plan is, uh, her reaction to the invasion of the Germans. Right. Uh, well, October was a dreadful, dreadful, a dreadful month uh, in 1941 for the, uh, for the Soviet citizens. Um, it, uh, it, it you know uh, it was the time when when the German advance reached its climax and uh, in fact from from June the German advance had never never stopped practically they were going on and on and on moving really fast right. and by right. mid October they had almost basically they had reached Moscow so uh, a lot of people thought that this was it that that the war was lost. Uh, can you imagine that on the 16th October, uh, a group of German motorcyclists were actually inside Moscow. They, uh, they uh, made it to the Leningrad Highway, to the northern outskirts of Moscow. Of course, they were very quickly killed. It was a very small force, but uh, the Germans were at the gate of Moscow. And it all happened so quickly that that no measures had been taken to, to evacuate the industry, leave alone the citizens, the, the, the people in Moscow. Mm-hmm. So in mid-October, a colossal, colossal exodus of people started from Moscow. People, people were running away. Uh, of course, needless to say, uh, those who had the means to run away, i.e. vehicles, which were very, very few, uh, the access was very limited. Uh, so, so the big bosses basically had access to vehicles, and the big bosses, the party, 
party bosses were fleeing. Uh, they, the highways were, were completely jammed with, with trucks and cars and carts, people working on food. Um, people, um, simple people felt very much betrayed. They realized on, on the 16th October, 16th, 17th October, that there was no more authority. So they were looting, people were looting the shops in Moscow. People, people were, um, flying into fits of fear in those highways, turning over and, um, these, you know, cars that were loaded to the roof with the belongings of, uh, of veteran of people beating these um, bosses that were fleeing, abandoning everybody. Uh, there was a colossal panic for a couple of days, and then uh, then they managed to to get it all back under control. And despite the rumors, Stalin had never left Moscow. He stayed there. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess Marina Raskova, if you can introduce us to her, what was her, her plan to deal with the German invasion? Um, she was a very famous person, a great celebrity, as we say nowadays, a very famous person in the country. She was in her late 20s, but the whole country knew her. Her portraits had been in all the newspapers. Many people, many women especially, had her portraits on the wall in their homes, she was a national icon, you know, an idol, famous aviator. And uh, she decided, she was receiving lots of letters from me, uh, female aviators from the beginning of the war. And she decided to go with these letters straight to Stalin because she, she knew him personally and he was, he was very much uh, uh, also an admirer of hers, of, of her great adventures as an aviator. Uh, so, so as we know, <laughs> not from documents, but from uh, from memoirs, mm-hmm. um, she she went straight to Stalin, and he permitted her to set up a female aviation regiment. Um, but as she started reviewing the applications, she she realized that she would have a lot more people than was needed for one regiment. So, so in fact, she set up three. That's amazing. She, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. And they did start, uh, it happened so that they started the training uh, exactly in mid-October on those uh, those days when probably nobody else in Moscow was thinking uh, about anybody else but the disaster that seemed, seemed imminent. Good for her. So how did she become famous? Uh, could you tell us about the flight of the motherland? She, uh, she trained as a navigator uh, and... Uh, I think she was probably the first female navigator in the country. The uh, navigators were very few. Uh, in fact, only a few years before uh, before Motherland was constructed, um, did they start making the the aircraft that needed navigators at all? You know, it was a very new industry. It was a very new profession. So she trained as a navigator. And because she was also a party member, uh, because also, as we know, she was part of the, of the secret police, uh, the, the NKVD, uh, sh- she started making extremely fast careers as a navigator to the point that um, she was selected as a crew. Um, uh, she was selected as the navigator for an all-women crew uh, for this, um, uh, for this um, huge uh, silver Tupolev NT-37 aircraft, uh, mm-hmm. on which really famous aviators um, uh, Polina Asipenko and Valentina Grizadubova planned to cross all of the Soviet Union, almost all of it, from Moscow to the Komsomolsk uh, and Amur, almost by the Pacific coast, a colossal flight, 6,000 kilometers. Um, she was I, uh, either selected by them or, according to, to later rumors, she, uh, she was forced on them despite not being a very experienced navigator. And uh, they, uh, this record-setting flight... Uh, did not go terribly well due to the weather conditions. Uh, once they crossed the Ural Mountains, um, it, it, because it was late September and really unpredictable weather, uh, weather 
the plane started to to ice over, and uh, at some stage there was no other solution but for the navigator to jump with the parachute. So, so Raskova jumped in the and the tiger and the rest of the crew landed the plane, um, not very far from her, but uh, of course she had to find them and she spent several days, I don't remember how many, uh, a week probably, uh, wandering in this colossal forest uh, in the cold, uh, looking for them. Um, when they found her, when she was found, uh, she was extremely thin, she was exhausted, she was very proud, so, so she refused to be carried. And triumphantly, they, uh, they arrived several days later back in Moscow, and the whole country was, was in raptures, was, uh, was delighted that she was alive, alive was decide, uh, delighted by, by this record-setting flight. Because they did set the record after all, even though they, they only flew half the distance. So, so since then, probably she, she was indeed a national hero. It's an amazing story. So, as you were saying earlier, um, she's she's going to want to create a regiment, but she has so many volunteers that obviously she's going to have three regiments. So, she's not going to be the only one uh, of the story. Can you introduce us to another person that I found very fascinating, um, Masha Dolina? When the first time that you mentioned her in your book, I just found her to be a very interesting character. She was very interesting. She was one of those people who who are always moving forward, fearless people, strong people, like many, in fact, very many of these female aviators. Um, Masha came from a from an extremely poor family, illiterate family, uh, and she definitely was one of those who, who owed everything to the revolution. Uh, she, uh, she got a chance to study, and... Uh, to her, this this uh, extremely modern, extremely popular profession, uh, um, aviation, was a huge social lift. Uh, so suddenly, she discovered that she uh, she uh, can have uh, quite a um, uh, quite a special stat- uh, status in the society. She. Uh, mm-hmm. By the time the war started, Masha became an instructor at the flying club, which was a very, uh, was a very, very desirable position. Okay, so um, so these women are coming together. A lot of them, and and you and you make this very clear in your book about it was important for them to say that they were volunteering. Um, and so a lot of them do step up. They volunteer, and um, they go to Ingalls. I'm probably saying that wrong, but they go to a place called Ingalls in November for their training. Can you give us an idea of what they went through in order to be to become military pilots? Sure. Let me just quickly explain about volunteers and non-volunteers. Please. Uh, all the pilots had volunteered, um, but of course, each aviation regiment, and they decided. Raskova had decided that they go- that they were going to be all female regiments. That no male crews, no male mechanics will be working there. So, so all the mechanics, all, all the armorers, uh, had to had to be also young women and and those they had to look for those were not you know it was not a typical profession before the war you know female aviation mechanic uh so for that to find these uh uh these people they went to universities for example they went to colleges and they announced that they needed volunteers to fill in these uh these positions and um and uh uh so, uh, as one of them said to me, uh, she did volunteer, but she was a little bit pushed uh, to do that, if you know what I mean. Somehow she felt yes. that she could not refuse. And uh, then, of course, when they were filling up the papers, they were uh, reminded again that they had to write, uh, that they had volunteered. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So this group of uh, group of young women, aged from 18 to to 23, maybe 24, uh, is put on a train, um, and very very slowly, 
over a couple of weeks, they make their way from Moscow because, of course, in, in mid, um, mid-October, they have to leave Moscow. It, it's too risky to stay in Moscow. It's impossible to train there. there there's chaos. So they go to, to the city of Engels uh, near Saratov by the Volga in the steppe where there's an aviation school where they can have their training in peace. Um, uh, step there is, uh, is very, very flat, which is ideal for landing. You, you can land anywhere, basically. It's like a natural airfield. Um, and the, uh, the uh, aviation school there was considered very, very good. And then Gebraskova space and facilities to, uh, to work with her cadets. Um, already on the train, uh, they started realizing that the relations will be very complicated between the pilots and the non-pilots, because of course, like, like one of them said, you know, how can a pilot treat a non-pilot favorably? <laughs> and, uh, the, the irony was that all these would-be mechanics and, and amorous were college girls, while, uh, many of the pilots were working class, you know, barely literate. So, so a lot of tensions began, and, and in fact, they continued till the end of the war. I just wanted to ask real quick, um, I, I, I was um, surprised when that came up in the book, and it comes up again and again, and you're right, it goes through the entire war. I, I guess I'm just confused because the pilots' very lives depend on their mechanics. It depends on these people servicing their, their aircraft and making sure that it's safe for them to fly. But you're absolutely right. I was... I was um I found it amazing that the pilots were treated a lot better as far as food as far as rations and and supplies and things like that but you're absolutely right there was a hierarchy and now these these peasant uneducated girls are now at the top of the pile Yes and uh and uh Many found it shocking to start with because, of course, in the Soviet society, they proclaimed complete equality between everybody. Now, of course, they found themselves in the position of either soldiers or officers, uh, which in the Soviet army, they, they, you know, were worlds apart. And, and, and all the pilots were officers. Uh, and... Uh, the mechanics never rose uh, above corporal, for example. Uh, so the food rations were different, the, the living quarters were different, etc., etc. But then the pilots were risking their lives every single day. That's true. So um, c- could you explain to us um, some of the training they went through and how important the military oath was when, when they got to that point? Um. The training, uh, of course, came as a great shock to to those of them who had who had not been to the aviation to the flying college. In the flying colleges before the war, the the discipline was very similar to that in the army. So, so to them, life life did not become very different. But to to those girls that were, you know university students that had been in the college uh, a couple of weeks ago so suddenly they have to to get up at 5:30 to to make their bed if if the bed is not made properly they they have to do it again uh, they have 15 minutes to finish their food they're not allowed to to leave the barracks etc etc the uniforms were just hilarious they were uh, were men's uniforms uh, they had to wear huge uh, men's boots because at that time, in 1941, in fact, until 1943, there were no women's uniforms made in the Soviet army. Uh, so, so all of this, they had to cut their hair very short. So, so all of this was a very, very big shock to, to start with. Um, then, of course, they got used, and also, also as they during their fighting units, the discipline uh, began um, began to become a little bit um, less strict. Could you tell us the um, the significance of the military oath? Um, I remember the day that my son became a Marine. He called me up and he was very proud. And I just imagine this was a very important moment for these women. 
Yeah, it's hard for me to say. I, I've never done it myself. And of course, you know, being a Russian of my generation, you are very cynical about both your state and your army. Um, but I, I guess to them it was kind of symbolic. It was very important. You were becoming officially uh, a defender of your motherland, officially becoming a soldier. Uh, so to them, and of course the propaganda also blew it up to to colossal dimensions. Yeah, taking the military oath was a very, very big thing. Right. So so the women get there in November, they start their training, but as far as the fighter squadron is concerned, they don't get their Yak-1 fighters until late in January of the following year in 42. I imagine they must have been very happy to get a, a better class of plane to fly in. They were extremely happy. They had been waiting and waiting for their planes. And, of course, the fighters uh, were a completely different group of uh, pilots, very different from everybody else. There were most of them, or I think even all of them, they were uh, sports pilots, uh, very skilled sports pilots, instructors from flying clubs, for example, participants in, in air shows, so to them, uh, to have to wait for the planes to, to be completely inactive for months and months was uh, a great humiliation, in fact, because they were one of the best uh, Soviet pilots of the time. Um, so when finally they, they arrived, and they were very pretty as well, they were white. It was winter, so, so they were painted white, and they were on skis, not on wheels. And everybody was absolutely delighted. They were so, so happy. Later, these skis were abandoned. They proved not very, uh, not very efficient, not a very good idea. But the first yaks that they got were on skis, and they were really good planes for the time. They were very happy. Okay, so so the fighter pilots get their fighters, the heavy bombers get their bombers. Finally, the PE two, and um, as before, they head into battle. There seems to be rumors going around um, the second half of 1941 and the first half of 1942, stories about Soviet pilots ramming into German planes, either on purpose or accident, because they were panicked. But at the time, it seems like the Germans were pretty much winning the air battles, um, I guess maybe dealing with either pilots who had did not have all the experience or their planes were inferior. Both of that, uh, in many, many aspects, Soviet Union was not ready for that war. And uh, the Air Force was definitely one of the very weak sides. So, so all through the war, they, they kept modifying the planes. Uh, throughout the war, they, they kept building up the numbers. Uh, all through the war, the pilots were improving their, uh, their techniques, learning from the enemy also. Uh, at the start of the war, it was a complete disaster. The planes were obsolete. The the pilots could not handle the the dogfights. Many many people got shot down in their very well, on their very first um, mission, um, and uh, and of course that's a chain reaction. It creates a great fear. It creates you know complete loss of confidence. Yes, it was really disastrous. And uh, and uh, even these famous famous sports pilots, female sports pilots like like Lera Khmikova, like uh, Raisa Belayeva, who joined the uh, uh, fighter regiment from from Baraskova, uh, when they found themselves in a in a front unit, uh, they discovered that they uh, even they did not possess the techniques of the of dogfights they had to learn uh those that survived the first battles had to learn on the job wow that's that's incredible so the fighters have been training they finally get their planes um and they are being told that they're going to go to moscow however they end up going somewhere else because they were i, I imagine very excited about having the chance to defend the capital and also the night bombers um, are have duty that is not um, 
as dangerous as it could have been. So in some ways, these young ladies, I guess, feel like they're not being taken very seriously. And like you stressed in your book, I mean, they're very young, but they've been through a lot of practice. They're very good now, and they're they're excited to defend their homeland, and they don't feel in some ways that they're being taken very seriously. Absolutely. And uh, uh, this, of course, caused a lot of frustration. They knew that they could fly missions better than men, uh, and they felt a lot of mistrust. They felt a lot of... A lot of um, uh, ridicule. Uh, they felt that they were not being taken seriously, and of course, you know, by nature, uh, uh, all these women were very competitive. If you're not very competitive, you would not, you know, um, uh, put a great effort into becoming a pilot and uh, and competing with men in this profession. So, so this caused great, great frustrations, um, and. Uh, this continued throughout the war. They had to prove, sometimes at the cost of their life, that they were as good as men. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's Yahoo Finance. Dot com. Incredible. If I could, um, so they, they had their training, they've got their planes, they're going to various locations. If we could go into some of the, I mean, you mentioned a lot of people in this book, obviously three regiments worth uh, for women. Uh, we can only cover some of them. But if we could go into some of the stories of, of what these young ladies accomplished, can you tell us the story of Anna Yegorova delivering her secret package? She was an amazing woman. She uh, she was a pilot, you know, a born pilot. She uh, she really was incredible. And uh, ever since she was a small village girl, she knew that this is what she wanted to do. She she wanted to she wanted to be a pilot. She wanted to fly. So before the war, she was already working as a pilot, and she volunteered immediately when the war started. Um, she uh, she did not know anything about Raskova. She, she only heard about Raskova much later in the war. She was flying in an um, uh, in a in a so-called liaison aircraft uh, liaison, um, you know, providing communications for for her unit. Uh, and she was she was fight uh, she was with the fighting unit from the very start of the war. Uh, she uh, she was part of this colossal disaster disastrous retreat uh, with the southern front. Uh, she she was uh, one of those that couldn't look the civilians in the eye that felt terribly guilty, although it wasn't really her fault that they were retreating and abandoning them. But she felt extremely guilty. She uh, she saw an orphan boy in one of the villages and uh, and had a um, uh, um, impulse to take them with her to to at least not to leave this boy you know to the to the germans not not to abandon the kid and then the 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 male pilots who were together with her said said but do you know if you'll be alive tomorrow 
how can we be responsible for anybody? Uh, so the day came when um, she was ordered to, to take a secret packet, uh, a secret letter, uh, uh, to the headquarters. It was somewhere close to Rostov on Don. Uh, and uh, as she took off, as, uh, as Anna took off, she could see this mass of retreating troops under, uh, and she, uh, she could see that, uh, that the troops marching uh, on the roads were not organized. It looked very chaotic, it looked very scary, it didn't look like an army. Um, and uh, very soon she was attacked by a Messerschmitt, a German fighter, uh, who immediately set, set her, her, you know, uh, biplane that was just plywood and canvas, set it on fire. So, so she, uh, she crash-landed and uh, ran to the bush, to the wood to hide, and, and they, uh, the fighter pilot continued firing on her. Um, so she finds herself, she's in her early 20s, she finds herself in a forest um, with terrible burns, you know, her hands are burnt, her face is burnt. Um, suddenly she looks around her and sees that it's, uh, it's a beautiful day, it's springtime, the, the, uh, the forest is coming back to life. Uh, it's so beautiful. And suddenly she thinks, what if I survive? What if I survive in this war? I, I so want to have a big family. And then slowly she starts making her way to the road. It's, uh, it's painful to walk. She's in pain, she's burnt. She makes it to the road. She, she still has to deliver the secret packet. She still has it on her. After, you know, after all that she's been through, after crushing in the burning aircraft, she has to, to somehow deliver the packet. Uh, and, um, and she try, tries to stop cars on the road. In the, in the cars are the bosses, the commanders, fleeing uh, in front of their troops, fleeing the Germans. And, uh, and finally she realizes that she has to stand in the road to, to make one of the cars stop. Uh, and uh, the car stops. Um, some soldiers, no, some officers, sorry, jump out and uh, twist her burnt arms behind her back because she's been, you know, she's behaving uh, um, uh, in an aggressive manner towards the high commander who's in the car. She, she does not let him pass. Um, and, um, and she manages to, to explain that she's got this secret letter secret package, and everybody is supposed to help her, to assist her, uh, and uh, the, general the general who's in the car becomes quite apologetic and says, okay, okay, girl, don't cry, or, or, or tears will make your face smart even more, the bones on your, uh, on your face will smart even more, and uh, they give her a lift to the headquarters. And uh, after that, in the hospital, you know, recovering from, from the burns uh, and injuries, she realizes that she can no longer fly this small plane who doesn't have any weapons on it, that she wants to take a revenge, that she can't stand it anymore. She, she, she no longer can stand being completely defenseless. She realizes that what she wants to fly is the attack aircraft, the Il-2. She really wants to take back her own. Hello, everyone. Ray here. What do the Holy Grail, Nefertiti's tomb, and Michael Rockefeller have in common? They're gone. But what happened? Where did they go? Well, I'm finding out, and you can too, by listening to a new mystery podcast called Gone. If you're a fan of the History of World War II podcast, you probably love mysteries, and this podcast is full of them. The hosts of Gone examine historic disappearances and the theories these disappearances have spawned. If it disappeared, they're looking. The hosts dive deep into the past as they explore the stories behind everything that vanished throughout history. 
Each episode analyzes in-depth research to figure out what happened to these missing people, places, and items. You can check out episodes on The Amber Room, D.B. Cooper, and What Happened to Oliver Cromwell's Head now. And with a new episode coming out every other Monday, you can expect episodes on Hemingway's Lost Manuscripts, Blackbeard's Treasure, and many more. So please, visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and search for Gone. Again, that's G-O-N-E, or visit parcast.com slash gone to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash gone to listen now. Um, Could you tell us about how Stalin gets involved with the air battles over Stalingrad, um, the Germans have pushed. They're trying to take over. It's not going well for the Soviet pilots, but Stalin wants everybody involved, and that includes the 586 Fighter Regiment um, that is told to participate in defending uh, Stalingrad. It's not exact. Uh, it's not exactly right. They, what happened to the 585 Regiment? They were ordered to to send. Um, uh, one wing, uh, it's one wing, yeah, eight, uh, eight aircraft with crews, it's called one wing, um, squadron, one air squadron. They were told to, to send one third, in fact, of the regiment, an air squadron, uh, to fight on the Stalingrad front. And, uh, and, and later, uh, later in the memoirs, people wrote that this was because there were such good pilots, etc. They were needed on the Stalingrad front. Uh, this is not really true. They uh, might have been very good pilots, but they didn't have combat experience. Uh, the thing was that so many aircraft had been shot down. They, they, uh, uh, regiments defending Stalingrad had lost so many people so many pilots and uh, so many planes that they were just completely desperate. So, so uh, they, uh, the commanders didn't have any choice but to transfer um, available pi- pilots with their aircraft uh, to the Stalingrad front. And, um, and the, uh, the eight pilots were separated and placed uh, in two different male regiments. Um, Soon they discovered that uh, that their planes, that their yaks, were more important uh, to the regiments than they were themselves, which was a very uh, very big disappointment. So again, these women are finding out that um, male chauvinism does exist, no matter what the Soviet state says, and so they're they're being pulled over because I mean they're being used in that way because they're planes, not because of themselves. And, and like you were saying in your book, they they just really wanted a chance to prove that they could do as well as any men, if not better, and help defend their country. And they do start getting some successes. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to butcher the name, but could you tell us the story of Lyra Komaikoyakova, who gets her first German bomber? That's right. Yes, she uh, she was bitterly disappointed uh, disappointed because she she did not uh, she was not posted to Stalingrad. Instead, they were sent uh, sent to to the anti aircraft defense of Saratov which was at the time, you know, in the rear area, quite far from the front. So Lyra was extremely disappointed. She, she was a very successful sports pilot, pilot before the war, famous. She took part in the Tushina uh, air parades in, um, in August every year, which, you know, uh, the whole government attended. Stalin was always there. So she was quite famous, and she was she was devastated when she... She did not get the chance to prove herself at the front. It was considered very safe in the in the anti-aircraft defense. Um, uh, but uh, very soon after the uh, after they moved to Saratov, um, she uh, she be- uh, she became um, famous all over the country now as a fighter pilot because she was the first one to shoot a night bomber during the night which required completely different skills from a pilot, which was very, very hard. And she was extremely proud. Everybody was proud of her. Um, 
correspondence came from newspapers. You know, she wrote to somebody in a letter that for the first time um, um, since Raskova had set up the regiments, um, they were served a decent lunch. <laughs> um, and she was even invited to to Moscow to receive a decoration from the chairman of, of the Soviet of Ministers, Kalinin. Um, yeah, and then she came back to the regiment, and then very soon she uh, she uh, crashed uh, at night because she she got confused. She she mistook the lights for something else. She crashed. Uh, it was a very a very senseless, uh, very unfortunate death. Uh, later, it was said that they did not, after all, possess. Uh, sufficient skills of sufficient training of night flying. Okay, so uh, November 42, I'm, I'm assuming that things in Stalingrad, Stalingrad are slowly turning around. The night witches are able to help participate by bombing fuel tanks. I, I'm, um, from what you're saying, I think they would rather take on the German pilots, even though this is not as, uh, as exciting, even though bombing fuel tanks is not as exciting, it is helping participate in the victory over Germany. Absolutely. No, by that time, the night witches, uh, the, uh, the women that flew uh, PO2 uh, biplanes that were uh, initially training aircraft, they were slightly modified to be used as bombers, Small bombs were hung on, on on very primitive hooks. In fact, on the belly of the of the aircraft. Uh, by that time, they were flying missions nonstop. Uh, by that time, lots of them were getting killed. They they definitely realized by November 1942 that the that the war was not a joke. It was not a game. It was a an extremely dangerous um, uh, affair. And yet and yet they had the courage to to go on. Uh, to fly at night with basically no instruments. You know, it's hair-raising now that you think about it. They had practically no instruments on the planes. Uh, they flew at night. This this time in November 1942 that you, you're talking about now, they were flying in the Caucasus, in the mountains, uh, in, uh, in weather conditions that were not predictable. It's mountains, you know, it's a different story. There's, uh, there's often fog unexpectedly uh, the relief was was very different from what they were trained to to fly in uh, it was very very dangerous um, um, a lot of them were getting killed and uh, and um, uh, and they still had the you know the strength to to continue and to compete with each other for the best missions. Yeah, my, my only explanation is that, that they were completely fearless because they were so young, as, uh, as uh, several of them had said to me in the interviews. Uh, of course, we, we saw people dying around us, but somehow it didn't occur to us that we can also die. It didn't seem like a possibility. It seemed absolutely impossible. Yeah, I, I, that was one of the parts of your book that I really like when you explain, when these women explain and you put it in the book that when you're young, you think you can do anything and all the bad things are going to happen to someone else. It's, it's, it's never going to happen to you. And when you have that kind of mentality, you can be courageous because you think you're going to be okay. Um, speaking of that, one of the parts of your book that will be with me forever and if you could just tell us the story of is when the um the commissar of the 85th air regiment dmitry panov is driving in his car and i think it's at night and he comes upon some german soldiers it was a scene uh, it was an absolutely dreadful morose terrifying scene that in fact was not uncommon for soldiers at stalingrad um so so panov was driving at night uh in a truck with uh, a couple of other people, and um, and uh, they are they are uh, um, uh, on their guard because they know that there are some individual groups of Germans here that are trying to get out of the encirclement. 
we're talking about the sixth uh, German army that's encircled there uh, near Stalingrad um, and uh, in Stalingrad. So, uh, so they're driving. It, it's night. Um, suddenly, they see, they think they see a group of people, and somebody says, as they come closer, somebody says Germans, and they stop. And um, and seconds pass, very long seconds. They're ready to to open fire. Uh, it starts to dawn on them that something is wrong here. Um, two people from the group start crawling towards these figures that are motionless. Um, suddenly somebody says they're dead, they're frozen to death. Uh, so that was... I know it sounds terrible, it sounds absolutely terrible, but that was a very common practical joke at the time. They were putting the frozen corpses upright, making compositions, making groups from them, um, making some funny scenes with them. I have, to, uh, I have to say that these German corpses were often stripped of their boots, for example, because both the boots and, and their the greatcoats were quite an important commodity uh, during that winter in Stalingrad. So, so often they were naked or, or, or half naked, uh, which added, added uh, even more aura to those uh, scenes. Um, it's not uncommon. I, I've read about this in, in other sources as well. Yeah, that was just a very... Um eerie part of your book that just that will just stay with me for a very long time the way they just came upon them so you have these young ladies they're finally getting their chance they're able to um take on the germans directly and of course the germans have a lot more experience they have they have um maybe not superior planes but they certainly have the best that that germany can produce and so a lot of these pilots like you were saying they were going on several sorties every day and when you just keep going back into war, you know, eventually bad things are going to happen. So there's just a couple of the main characters I'd like to uh, to cover if we could talk about their, well, their deaths. Could you could you describe for us the death of the hero that started all of this, Marina Raskova? Um, she, uh, she, um... She had risked her life before, and she never stopped to to put uh, the lives of other people at risk. She was a great gambler. She was quite reckless. Uh, so she uh, was to blame for for not only her own death, but uh, but that of several other people. She decided to to fly in very poor weather conditions. Her regiment was ordered to move to the Stalingrad front. It, it was in. Uh, it was just before the new year, uh, 1943. So she was ordered to to move the regiment. Uh, she was by that time the commander of the of the P two, the dive bomber regiment, uh, and the regiment was flying closer to the Stalingrad front. She had stayed behind with several crews that that had problems with aircraft. And they were catching up with the regiment. Uh, so she, Raskova, despite the very, uh, very bad weather forecast, decided to take the risk and fly. Um, and the fog by the Volga, the fog that was supposed to, to be lifting, in fact, became much worse. So, so at some stage, the, the visibility became zero. Um, again, uh, they could have, they had a chance to survive if Raskova had trusted uh, the regimental navigator who was already uh, also with her on her aircraft, a uh, very experienced man. Um, but again, you know, she decided to trust, uh, to trust her own skills, her own instincts. Um, she did not listen to him. She'd, uh, she went her own route in this zero visibility, and she crashed into the high bank of the Volga, uh, 
so she was killed instantaneously. Uh, the, the regimental navigator also got killed. The two other people died a terrible death of, of, of bleeding to death and, uh, and freezing to death uh, during the several hours that followed. Um, the two crews that were flying with her, uh, together with her, they, uh, the pilots were a lot more experienced than Raskova. They managed to crash land and survive. She died, and of course she was lamented by everybody. She was such an idol. She was, um, you know, when I interviewed the veterans 70 years after, they uh, they still only wanted to talk about Raskova and what a great what a great thing she did for them. You know how lucky they had been to to have been with her in the war. She 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 inspired them. Uh, uh, they you know they'd repeat her phrase to me: "We can do anything. There's nothing we can uh, nothing we cannot do. We can manage any task." And um, um, you know. Even I was inspired after leaving their homes, you know, 70 years later, knowing that Praskova was such a complex character, good and bad, you know, um, a mixture. Um, even I kept feeling inspired by her words. She had a great charisma. Yeah, I, I just imagine, like you were saying earlier, she was just a hero to so many women that it must have been devastating um for all those people to lose her uh could you tell us the story about masha dolina during the battle of the blue line masha had been flying for for quite a while she she'd gained quite a lot of experience by that time but of course the blue line on the on the taman peninsula by the black sea uh had had very very strong fortifications and uh and the german uh, Anti-aircraft defense there was very strong, was extremely strong. So, so um, uh, pilots, navigators described uh, what they saw underneath them as a forest of explosion, uh, as a field of huge dandelions, you know, dandelions of explosions um, targeting them, trying to kill them. So, so on the day when Masha Dolina's uh, plane got hit. Um, she was um, uh, she was on a mission with with nine other aircraft, and um, they had to fly very low due to weather conditions, due to low cloud. So so instead of um, say two kilometers, they were flying on the height of one kilometer, very close to this anti-aircraft fire. So so she got hit. Uh, just before she reached the target, she managed to to reach the target, drop the bombs, turn back. By which time, uh, one of her wings was on fire. She, uh, it's incredible, but she managed to make it to limp across, to limp back across the front front line. You know, losing speed, losing altitude. The plane's on fire. It's amazing that they would prefer to die. Uh, then to land on the German territory, it, it, it tells you a lot about mentality of this, uh, the Soviet pilots, you know, they, uh, it was better to die than to surrender to, to the enemy. Uh, so they managed to, to cross the river Kuban and to land on the other side on the Soviet territory, by which time the plane was burning. They tried to get out, and the hatch was jammed. They could not get out of this burning plane. Um, so, so finally, the the uh, the radio operator uh, and gunner, the third member of the crew, um, who was a young boy called Vanya, managed to force it open with a screwdriver. They. Uh, they jumped out. The girls, the two girls, Masha and Galia, started rolling in the grass trying to, to, to put out the fire because their uniforms were on fire. And, uh, and Vanya yelled at them, um, come on, don't you see? It's about to blow up. The plane's about to blow up. So they ran, and Vanya had counted 51 steps before the plane did blow up. Um, so, so this was a very narrow escape. And um, but soon, uh, soon they were all back in their regiment. Uh, you know, 
recovering from burns and um, wounds, and they all, all of them continued to fly. That they, they were incredibly tough people. That's amazing. Could I know it's um, we're run, almost running out of time. If we could do one more, could you tell sure. us about the disappearance and/or death of Lilia Lityak? Which I'm sure I said that very badly. I'm sorry. No, you didn't. You said it really well, Lily Litviak. Um, yes, she was the center of the book. It's it's strange she's only coming up now. Uh, she was the uh, the person from which the book, from who the book started, in fact. Um, and uh, and when she disappeared, when she went missing, there were all sorts of rumors about her. Uh, uh, and about her disappearance, as one of her colleagues from the uh, uh, 586 fighter regiment told me, it's not surprising, women are just jealous, it's a women's, uh, it was a group of women in the regiment, they were just jealous because she was so pretty and she flew so well. Um, so, so on the date when she was missing, uh, they were uh, fighting desperately in the eastern Ukraine, uh, for many, many uh, days, weeks, in fact, they were trying to, to break through the German lines, and, uh, and it was just not happening. Um, both sides were suffering great losses, and, um, and fighters often uh, flew on the missions accompanying, escorting the, the attack aircraft they were, that were attacking uh, Strafing the German troops, strafing and bombing the the German troops. Um, according to her wingman uh, Alexander Yevdakimov, who later took part in in searching for for her aircraft, um, Litvak was uh, shot down. Uh, he did not see her bailing with a parachute. Um, and the date was her fourth mission already, and uh, when she was leaving, her mechanic, although he was just a soldier and was not supposed to to, uh, to give instructions to officers, her mechanic, Nikolai Minkov, uh, said to her that uh, that it was not a good idea to fly so many missions. She, uh, she must be very tired already. Can't the men do this instead of you? But of course, Litviak wouldn't hear that. She wouldn't hear about that. She went, and um, and uh, when uh, when the uh, the group came back from the mission, Minkov saw that his aircraft, his pilot, did not come back. And then they looked for her. She was never found. Um, there were rumors that she had surrendered, that she had defected to the Germans. Uh, the family was not getting a pension. The the brother uh, had to change his surname because he was feeling embarrassed. Uh, it's such a sad story, such a sad story. She, um, um, nobody knows exactly how the rumor started. I, I've heard different versions, but this is extremely sad. Uh, I'm sure she she did die on that day. Uh, she died on that day. It's not surprising that the the aircraft, the body was never found. It was hell on earth. The, you know, uh, front line kept moving in, in both directions the whole time. Who, who would care to look for a body of a pilot? Um, she did die on the day. She, she was 21. Uh, she still remains the most successful pilot, pi uh, female fighter pilot in history. She, she had tw uh, 12 kills at least uh, to her name. That's incredible. And and I guess because they couldn't find the body, the state could not be sure that she wasn't captured. And so no pension for the family. Uh, that's just another very tough thing to go through in a very tough time for all of these people. It's not just that. Uh, no, a lot of aviators were going missing, of course, in that hell. You know, uh, how would they find the, the aircraft and the bodies? No, somebody had deliberately slandered her name. Uh, why? We're not sure. I, uh, I wrote about several versions in my book. I believe one of them. Uh, it's very, very sad. 
So I, I have to tell you, this book in your in your previous book about the snipers, I've been sharing. I know this is going to sound strange, but I've been sharing the stories with my daughters just because I want them to have a very strong sense that women uh, can do anything they want. They can do anything that uh, men can do. They can be very tough. And so um, I'm, I just was wondering, after you did all the research and you traveled around and you spoke to these women, the ones that were still alive, I'm just trying to get a sense of um, what impression did you have of all these ladies after you finished talking to them and, and researching them? Well, just like you, I was very inspired by them. Uh, I was proud of them in their late 80s and their 90s. They were still active. They were achieving a lot. They never complained. Special people, tough people. And, of course, you learn very much from them. You you acquire a little bit of their, of their strength. Uh, of course, they're not ordinary people. One cannot, you know, really try and be like them. They're just made of different material. <laughs> But I was extremely proud of them. Um, one of them that that unfortunately started after after Lilia's death, i.e., under the end of this book. So, so I, I wrote a little bit, included a little bit about her in my book on snipers, Yelena Malutina. Uh, she uh, she lived to be 98 years old, and uh, and every visit, every conversation was absolutely precious. Uh, it's such a source of uh, She was such a source of strength and optimism and, and wisdom. They were truly special people. I was extremely privileged to have known them. And uh, it, it feels very strange now because everybody is gone. Oh, that's, that's so sad. Uh, Luba, again, thank you very much for this book and for spending some time with us to talk about it. Uh, the book is Defending the Motherland, the Soviet Women Who Fought Hitler's Aces. You can find it anywhere books are at. Uh, thank you very much, Luba, for being on. And when you write your next book, which I'm sure you're probably going to be doing soon, we'd love to have you come back on the show. Thank you so much, Ray. It was great talking to you. Okay, thank you very much and take care. Thank you, you too. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>